should mention that we ended the fiscal year well. We ended with a surplus, as shown on the back of your worship guide, and that was after replacing, I think, about $70,000, $80,000 worth of air conditioners that all went out together. They had a party and together, and uh, so thank you for your incredible generosity. I wanted to encourage you about something that Grace does quietly. Um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we had a little reunion of some of the men who have served on our staff or been uh, interns in my time here at Grace. And this is not all. Some couldn't come that we invited. Some we couldn't find there. But roughly 20 came together. I, I got this idea when I was on sabbatical and we had them preach. And all of you got to enjoy how great they are. And I didn't get to see them. So I invited them in and one of our members paid for it. And we had a three-day reunion where we sat and talked about our challenges and encouraged each other. And one of the great ministries of this church is that because of our connection with DTS, we get a part in preparing people like this. And they're a church planter in, outside of Spokane, Washington. There's Vic Newfeld in, in Winnipeg, Canada. There's Andrew Russell serving in Washington, D.C. There's Chris Howe. I don't know what Chris does, but it, it, uh, seriously, it, it's just an incredible encouragement to me to see all the men that we have been able to have a part in their lives and who are serving faithfully around the country and literally around the world. So I just thought you'd have fun seeing that. Um, I have another picture on my desk that I didn't bring, and it, ironically, it's, uh, it's um, one of my golf escapades. There, the Union Gospel Mission used to have an annual golf tournament. I don't know if they still do, but I was always in a foursome with Bob Appleby and True Pollard and Bill Bryan and I, and I'm the only one still living, which says something about playing golf with me. Um, a number of those dear guys tried, well, Bill Bryan didn't try to teach me because he couldn't play either, but True and Bob both tried to teach me how to play golf. I thought golf would be fun, right? Yeah, I mean, let's think about it. We live in the concrete prairie. Dallas is, you don't come to Dallas because it's pretty. The only pretty places in Dallas are the Arboretum and golf courses. So I thought if I play golf, I'll get to have fun and I'll be in a pretty place. And how, how hard could that be until I tried? And then what I learned about golf is it's really not a fun game. And, and because every time you swing the club, there are a hundred things you need to be try to remember. In fact, Bob would take me out to the driving range and we almost, almost ended up in a fist fight because he's trying to help me and I'm yelling at him. We're yelling at each other. It was a great witness for the Lord. And I, I, I just decided that trying to remember all the rules and try to do it right, I lost what the whole point of it was. Because it wasn't fun. And you know, that's an illustration of what happens often in life. In fact, today, I want us to look together at how that happened in Scripture. If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going through the first nine chapters of Luke, kind of an introduction to who Jesus is. We'll come back to Luke later. But uh, it just as we click through these large sections, I want you to get this sense of what the physician and historian Luke wants us to see about who Jesus is. Last week, we, we saw the summary of his ministry. Today, Jesus actually begins the ministry as told by Luke, and, and he wants us to know that Jesus is introducing a whole new way. Jesus, as you know, came in the first century at a time 
when the nation of Israel was totally insular. It was controlled by Rome, but Rome just said, let's try to leave them alone because they're a pain in the neck. And so the Sadducees sort of had full reign, and the Israelites did their thing, and Rome just said, don't rebel, and we'll leave you alone. And they just were totally caught up in their little rules. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were uh, marching around giving people instructions, and they were an incredibly religious group of people. In fact, of all the people in the world, the last one you would think that would need somebody to come and tell them about religion, Israel would be the last one because they had religion down. They were good at religion. They loved their religion. They were defined by their religion. Their their capital was Jerusalem, and the most important aspect of Jerusalem was the Temple Mount, and on top of the Temple Mount was this remarkable temple, and that was the focus of everything about them. And yet, God chose to send his son to this place to bring a new way, to give them a new set of priorities. So if you look at chapter 5, the first section, I want you to know that he has a new mission, a new mission. Verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing by Lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee also, same same place, the people were crowding around him and listening to the Word of God, and he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, and the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. If there was a thought bubble over Simon Peter's, it would say, who is this creature anyway? Trying to teach me how to fish? Really? When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners on the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I want you to notice repeatedly in Scripture when someone encounters God, one of the first things they, the two things happen. First, there is remarkable humility. Uh, submission, worship. He falls before Jesus' feet. And secondly, there is an awareness of our own sinfulness. You know, it, we have emphasized for decades now the importance of the intimacy with Christ, to be a friend of the Lord, to know him and love him well, and well we should. He, he came to be our friend. He uses those ter- that terminology. But, but, but we lose half the picture if we don't fall before him on our face. We lose sight of his perfection and his goodness if we don't become aware of our need for that goodness and that righteousness. And part of the reason the world around us doesn't feel a need for Jesus is they don't see his goodness in us. So Peter falls on his face before him For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. 
new mission. Jesus uh, did this because these four men, poor Andrew always gets left out. My namesake always is forgotten. I think he was short. But the reality is that Peter and Andrew and James and John are these, according to the, to the other gospels, these first four apostles whom Jesus called out to serve him. And Jesus did this miracle of the fish catch, which these fishermen understood to be a miracle as a part of him calling them to a mission. And that mission is that they weren't going to spend their profession just chasing after fish for food, but instead they were going to join Jesus in pursuing humans. Men and women made in the image of God, image bearers, for whom Jesus would ultimately die, taking on the judgment for their sins and be resurrected on the third day so that he could show how they would ultimately have life as well. Jesus chooses, and at the end of this passage we'll look at, he, he will choose the 12. He'll list the 12 whom he chose to join with him in reaching humanity because that was Jesus' mission. Now the irony is, the irony is the teachers of the law, the Jews at that time will believe that this is a totally different mission than one that God gave them in the Old Testament. But I would argue that they forgot what God's mission really was for them. Continue reading with me. Having given them a new mission, in the next few verses he shows there is a new power, a new authority to accomplish this mission. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Leprosy is described in detail in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Scholars today believe that the New Testament term for leprosy would have probably covered a number of skin diseases. But if you go back and read Leviticus 13 and 14, you find they're all gross. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about the Old Testament law is it, it did teach the Jewish people and all those around them what the righteousness of God is. It, it did teach them that God had a standard of righteousness to which they could live up but not live up. But the interesting thing is the, the Old Testament law did something else. It protected them. In other words, uh, leprosy, these skin diseases, required someone to be left outside of the community. If you, if you touched someone with leprosy, you were then made unclean and couldn't engage in active worship. And in one sense, that sounds kind of cruel and harsh. But understand, they had no medical treatment for leprosy. It was a way to protect these contagious diseases from spreading throughout the nation of Israel. It, in other words, God's law had the legal purposes and the theological purpose of demonstrating the justice of God. But ironically, it often protected them in ways that are very human because God created all of us. He knew what we needed. But it helps inform us of how this man who was a leper felt because no one touched him. You ever thought about that? No one touched him. When my mother was in her 90s, she said to me one time, son, 
no one touches old people. And we need to be touched. So I've told my staff, when you go see someone who's elderly in a nursing home or otherwise, don't forget to touch their arm. Hold their hand and pray with them. Because we all need human touch, right? The lepers would not be touched. So they experienced an isolation that, that frankly, would be pretty degrading. So while Jesus could have just commanded the skin disease to go, what does he do? He touches him. And in doing so, he, he re- elevates the dignity of this man. He sacrifices his own uh, ceremonial purity, and he demonstrates his love for the guy. He touches him. He cares for him. He loves him. Of course, we live in an area where you're afraid to touch anyone. Someone, a lady hugged me in the commons one day, and I said, will you sign this release form, please? Um, we've kind of gone crazy with all this, but the reality is that, that humans need that kind of care. And Jesus demonstrates his authority over this almost incurable disease. Only Naaman in 2 Kings is healed in the Old Testament of leprosy. And, and he demonstrates his power by touching him and healing him. Next, there's a man who suffered paralysis, verse 15. Uh, oh, by the way, I need to make a point. Notice that when he heals the leper, he tells him to submit to the law. You catch that? He says, go to the priest as the law required. Let him declare you healed and then offer the sacrifices that the law requires. Jesus was not antagonistic toward the law. In fact, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He is not antagonistic to the law. He wants the man to submit to the law because the law is a reflection of the character of God. Okay, verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And some men were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in the front of Jesus. You know, you got to know the homeowner loved this one. Right? I love the next phrase. When Jesus saw their faith. Jesus healed this man in response not just to his faith, but in response to his friend's faith on their behalf. You ever thought about that? See, you have to trust God for other people when you bring them to Jesus. And many of us haven't introduced people to Jesus because we really don't trust God with them. We, We don't have the faith of what he can do in their lives. Jesus healed this paralytic not just because he believed, that God would do it, Jesus would do it, but because they believed on his behalf. 
why it's important that we pray for friends that are lost, that, that we believe God can change their lives, not give up hope. Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I want you to notice how many times the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come up in this passage because this is a battle over authority. They began thinking to themselves, who is this guy who speaks blasphemy? Because he says he can forgive sins, but only God can. And Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. One of the stronger passages about the deity of Christ. He does not deny that only God can forgive sins. He says, and the Son of Man can too. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. Immediately stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Healing of the lame was considered a messianic miracle. One of my best friends growing up, all the way back to Cub Scouts, was Bobby Neal. Bobby Neal was quadriplegic as a result of a fall our senior year. One of the first times I ever drove to Dallas, we drove to visit him in Parkland Hospital when he was in traction. They were trying to save his life. Ironically, Debbie Condra ended up being his physical therapist later on. In fact, through my life, I've run into multiple people who knew Bobby. But carting Bobby around school our senior year um, in his wheelchair and, and seeing the impact of paralysis is one of those things that changed my life. He went from being a lineman being recruited by Division I schools to a helpless man who had to help, have help to do almost anything. Um, we can't imagine what Jesus did for this man. But he did it in such an odd way because he didn't say be healed. He said your sins are forgiven. Why do you think he did that? Because Jesus is not only healing this individual, but he's demonstrating who he is. His point is that in one way, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can prove one way or another whether they are, right? But it's demonstrable. It's evident if you hear a, heal a paralytic and no one can deny that's happened. In doing so, Jesus shows that his miracles were designed to prove that he is God and has the right to forgive sins because ultimately as a fisher of man, what Jesus came to do is rescue us from the brokenness that occurred in Genesis chapter 2. Rescue us from the death in our souls, the sinfulness, the deprivation, the brokenness, the emptiness that comes as a result of sin. Jesus came to give life to crippled humanity. But to do that, he didn't just heal their legs and their arms and their skin. He gives us the right to be forgiven and made whole and made alive.
Verse 27 is the third example of him establishing his authority. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, they had come to the conclusion that their, their religion gave them a right to judge other people as sinners, that, that the point of the law was to give them a right to feel better than other people, that, that the point of, of, of the Old Testament was give people religious practices whereby they could look down at other people, feel good about themselves, and keep themselves busy at night. They neglected to understand that the law was an act of God's love and grace to teach people about his character and draw them back to himself by the sacrificial system. They, they wanted to judge these sinners because they failed to realize that regardless of their religious activity, they were broken as well. See what is going on? And Jesus, with his tongue thoroughly stuck in his cheek, said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come for it to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Are the Pharisees righteous? No. But they're convinced they are. Uh, Jesus has demonstrated what his mission is. If the mission of the disciples is, is to go and catch humans for the, in the net of Jesus' love, his mission is to call sinners to repentance and receive forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross. So they said to him, John's disciple, I love the way they changed the subject. Well, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus said, can you make friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. In those days they will fast. They still don't get the point of their religious activity. Verses 36 through 39 are the heart of this passage because in it, Jesus specifically says what all of these events are trying to say. It's a new wine. He told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Jesus said, I've come to offer something new. I've come to offer something new. Now, the interesting thing is, and there's a whole tension theologically, and I don't have time to go into all this, and I'm not smart enough to solve it. There's a whole tension of the Old Testament and its purpose as it relates to the New Testament. And there, there is one sense in which everything that the Old Testament sets about God is true and, and the, the Old Testament is meant for good and is a beautiful thing and the law is a beautiful thing. But there's a, another sense in which the New Testament is new. It's rooted in the truth of the Old Testament. By virtue, though, of the Messiah, Jesus coming, it is a new day because the Old Testament is pointing to him. 
It's, a, it's pointing our attention to him, but he fulfills it and it completes it and so it's a new day. Uh, there are some who would almost imply that the Old Testament no longer matters. It, it certainly matters as the revelation of God, but it is imperfect and impartial in the sense that it, it doesn't complete what the New Testament brings to completion. Jesus says, you can't love me the old way. This is a new day. And in some ways, I think he's denying their perversion of the Old Testament. In some ways, he's reminding them not just that the Old Testament needed a fulfillment in the new, but also that they had perverted the Old Testament and distorted it beyond recognition. But what we need to see here is that Jesus is making it clear to these religious leaders that there is a new authority in town, and it is he. And the old ways of focusing on legality and attained righteousness that they had so twisted the law to mean are replaced by the emphasis that will come by God's mercy and grace because none of us, the Old Testament taught and the New Testament fulfilled, can live up to Jesus' standard on our own, right? But notice what he says in the next phrase. People love the old. Isn't it interesting that the New Testament in Christ offers mercy and grace, but we always gravitate back to doing good and judging others? Isn't it fascinating that, that we so quickly become about our own ability to be, live up to rules, legalism, in other ways, and so quickly forget that ultimately it's about embracing the forgiveness that Jesus gave on the cross. We, we so, our flesh so desperately wants to think we're better than other people. Our flesh so, flesh so quickly judges other people. And our, our, our flesh so easily loses sight that, that Jesus came to reach image bearers of God to extend his healing mercies to heal broken hearts and souls but we so easily slide back into being religious and losing sight of why he's here I gotta hurry verses 1 through 15 of chapter 16 of 6 excuse me shows the new law one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands to eat kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I don't have time to go into all the legal arrangements, but suffice it to say that in their opinion, they were breaking the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread, the show bread and the holy of holies, and he ate it, what was lawful only for the priest to eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm bigger than the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? 
you realize that a human heart is so deceptive we can use the righteousness of God as an excuse to do evil? We've done it historically. And you and I have probably done it individually. We've used the righteousness of God as an excuse to do evil. I've known in marriages where there was adultery or physical abuse. The one who had committed the sin used God's hatred of divorce as an excuse to entrap the innocent person. That's using the righteousness of God to do evil. Rather than repent of their own sinfulness and, and change themselves, they used God's goodness as an excuse to do harm to someone else. Throughout history, the church at large and we as individuals have, have used the goodness of God as an excuse to do what is wrong. Jesus condemns it. Uh, they didn't want him to heal this man with a shriveled hand because it was the Sabbath. And he says, really? The Sabbath is a day set apart for the good of humans and we're not going to do good on that day? And they said, well, you can't work. So notice what he does. He says, stretch out your hand. Jesus didn't do anything, but he broke the law according to the way they interpreted it because they literally had come to the point that they no longer wanted to do good in the name of Christ. They only wanted to be right. It's so easy to get caught up in religion lose the love of God in Christ. It's so easy to lose sight of why God has called us. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with another what they might do to Jesus. And then he chooses the 12. Our priority is reaching people with a message of God's love and forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. The priority is bringing, restoring life where there is death through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The essence of the new way is God's grace by Jesus offering himself to save people. How much do we still on, hold on to the old? Fall back into religion rather than extending the love of God as described in the New Testament, exercise our own religion. Deny the very thing he's come to do. Men and women, this is a temptation that we all struggle with. I'm trying to do, the Pharisees, interesting, I went back and did a little, I'm, I'm over time, a little reading on the Pharisees. You know, they were started for the best of purpose. They, they really intended to do good. But what happened is they, they lost their ball in the weeds. They lost sight of what they were there to do. They, they lost the whole purpose of God, which is to reach humans with the mercy and grace of God, the forgiveness of God through Jesus' death on the cross. Instead, they got up chasing all these religious issues and forgot the gospel, the very mission of Christ. We dare not do that. We dare not do that. Please pray with me. Father, sometimes the rules, doing it right, can take all the joy out of life. The rules of golf can take the joy out of the game, and the 
rules of religion can take the heart out of our faith. Lord, help us to become fishers of humans, image bearers, people made in your image who desperately need to know your message. Cause us to love others the way you love them. Cause us to take your gospel to people that are broken, alienated, desperate to be touched, longing to be loved. Because that's what the Savior did. In Jesus' name, amen.